God, we acknowledge and we praise you that there is salvation only in your name. And it is a complete work of your grace. There's nothing that we bring to the table. And Father, we just ask that you would have your way with us here this morning. That God, that you would shape us and mold us any way you see fit. It's in Christ's special name we pray. Amen. Good morning. A few of you ladies and a lot of men. So I was sitting in the back. I thought about um, just changing the, the passage in the message to uh, something out of second, uh, the second chapter of Genesis, something along the lines of that it's not good for man to be alone. I hear an amen to that? Amen. How are you guys doing? Lonely. Lonely. <laughs> yeah. You know, the guys with the older kids are lonely. The guys with the younger kids are just like a deer in the headlights. You know, it's like, <laughs> good morning. So do you know which church you're at, guys? Right there. Um, boy, it is, um, it's been a while since I've had the opportunity to be up here, and it's, it's just a privilege to be able to open God's Word with, uh, with you all. And, um, you know, we, I see a couple of visitors, and I want to just kind of, just give you an idea of what, what it is we're all about and uh, what it is we, we, we uh, do on Sunday morning in the Word. Our mission is to lead people into a growing relationship with Jesus Christ. And our method of teaching through the Word, if you will, is to teach through a book verse by verse. And we've been teaching through Second Corinthians. And uh, Pastor Chris finished up uh, chapter 9 of Second Corinthians a couple weeks ago. And then we had uh, Pastor Dustin from Crossway Chapel of Greeley come in last week and just give us a, uh, just a, uh, we really want to do more exchanging of the pulpit, if you will, with our sister churches, just so we have exposure to each other's churches. And Dustin taught on just unity in the body of Christ. And I thought he did a great job. And it was, uh, it wasn't a message we had asked him to preach. We asked him to, to come in and, and uh, talk. And he says, you know, I did a, I did a message on the 23rd of December. Can I just deliver that? And uh, said, sure, what is it? And he said, unity in the body of Christ. We said, right on. Sounds great. I was going to start today on 2 Corinthians 10, verses 1 through 6. I'm really excited about it. It's where it says that we're destroying every speculation that raises itself up against the knowledge of God. And then he says, take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. And as believers, our battle oftentimes is in our mind. And I just, I asked the guys if we could take a pause on that, uh, just because, you know, there's, there's almost 40 ladies that are missing. MIA, missing in action. And it really, this is, it's a message, you know, every message is a message for all of us to hear. I mean, God's word is living and active and sharper than a two-edged sword, as Chris said earlier. But it's, there's times where, where there's, where we, we gotta look at our audience and see who's there and deliver that kind of message. So today, we are, going to talk about some guy stuff. <laughs> Actually, um, the Lord had changed my heart and my mind about six times this week, which explains the circles under my eyes. And this is a message by God's grace that I had in my mind for the guys, uh, but it is, it is appropriate for every one of us, and we, it's a message we need to hear. We were at our leadership meeting, our monthly leadership meeting last Tuesday. There's 10 of us that meet once a month, and we're going through a book called Why Small Groups by C.J. Mulhaney. And one of the questions that was asked is, is who is your Nathan? Who's your Nathan? And really the, the context there was just talking about, are we involved in accountability? Who's got our back? 
And who are we sharing our hearts with? And there seems to be examples all throughout Scripture that, that we need each other. You know, that, that, we're, that the Christian walk is not about lone rangers. It's about men sharpening men, women sharpening women. And of course, in, the, in marriage, which is one of our God's main sanctifying tools is marriage, we're going to sharpen each other in marriage. But I would submit to you that marriage may not be enough. That as men, we need other men in our lives. And as women, you need other women in your lives. Uh, we've been going through a, a Bible study and community group called Love and Respect. And it's all is based off of Ephesians 5, where the Lord says, men, you're to love your wives, and wives, you're to respect your husbands. And this guy is, is kind of a goofball. I mean, that's teaching this. He's, it's a lot of fun. But he talks about how, how men hear everything through a blue megaphone. You know, that thing that cheerleaders have, it's called megaphones. And women hear it through a pink megaphone. And oftentimes, when us guys speak through our blue microphone, the ladies hear it through the pink megaphone, and it causes problems. So we need other guys, guys, to help give perspective on this Christian walk. And ladies, you need other ladies. And so if you look at your programs, pull out your program for a second and open up to the notes page. And what you're going to see is the title of the message says, what's the title of the message? Somebody yell it out. A faithful friend and a humble response. And the verses say 2 Samuel 12, verses 1 through 15. So our passage today is in 2 Samuel 12, verses 1 through 15. We're going to cover a lot of ground today. And this, there is, there's probably a six-week sermon just in this chapter. And I'm so excited about it. It's just neat to be able to have the opportunity to open, open the Word in the Old Testament. And we're going to cover a lot. Uh, there's a lot of meat, including the deception of sin, consequences of sin, God's mercy in sin, admonishing others, the faithful wounds of a friend, and then receiving admonishment from others. So chapter 12 gives us an account of King David's friend Nathan confronting him, confronting David on some serious ac- accusations. But let's, before we get into chapter 12, let's kind of lay, lay the groundwork as to what's going on. David, as you know, we, we all know David, different parts of his life. And David is the youngest son of eight, of Jesse. He's in the line of Jesse. He was a shepherd. He was a young man of courage. He killed bears. He killed lions. And he killed a big guy by the name of Goliath. One of the, his best known stories, a nine foot giant named Goliath. David was a musician. He was a harpist. He played the harp. He was a psalmist. He wrote somewhere north of 75 of the 150 psalms. And then he was king of Israel, most powerful man on the planet. So in verse 11, David, who is the king of Israel in many of the surrounding areas, sent his army out with Joab the general to finish business with the Ammonites, a neighboring province that has caused him a lot of problems. So springtime was wartime, so he sent Joab and his armies out to conquer the Ammonites. And usually David would go with them, but for some reason he stayed behind this time. Not quite sure why. God's word doesn't tell us why. But David's in bed. The scripture says he wakes up, he goes out on his roof, and he spots a lady 
bathing. The lady's name is Bathsheba. Most of us know this story. And David asks his subjects, who is this lady? And they said, her name is Bathsheba, wife of Uriah the Hittite, one of your loyal soldiers. And David apparently didn't hear that, or maybe he heard that and he didn't care. Sin is very deceitful. And he told his subjects to go get Bathsheba and bring her up to his room where he uh, consummated adultery, where he slept with her. It says in the scripture that Bathsheba cleansed herself, purified herself, and she went back home. Next thing we know, we're not sure how much time passed, but Bathsheba sends word to David that she's pregnant. Sometime, I guess, whenever, however long it takes to, to know you're pregnant, but month, two months. And David, with no sorrow, had one purpose in his heart, and that was to cover up his sin. To cover up his sin. So he sent word to General Joab to send Uriah the Hittite back home. And his strategy was to have Uriah go home and sleep with his wife that night so that nobody would know that David got her pregnant. So Uriah met with David. David sent him out of the palace to go home and sleep with his wife Bathsheba, only to find out the next day that Uriah never went home. He slept on the front porch, basically, of David's palace. And David said, Uriah, why didn't you go home? You had a great opportunity to be with your wife. He's a goofball. Actually, he's loyal. He said, because I cannot go home and sleep with my wife, eat with her, enjoy her, when my fellow comrades are out in the battlefield, sleeping in tents, and protecting the Ark of the Covenant. So he says, stay one more night before you go back to the battlefield, Uriah, and come to my palace and eat with me. He had Uriah over, they ate, they drank. David's goal was to get him drunk, send him home, and to sleep with his wife. He thought, if I can't get him to go home when he's sober, I'll drunken him up and I'll get him to go down. Guess what happened? He wouldn't go. He slept at the palace. David was beside himself. David had one goal, and that's to cover his backside. One goal. So he sent a note, a sealed note, with Uriah back to the battlefield to deliver it to Joab the general. You know what that note said? It told Joab to put Uriah in the front of the line, in the front line of the battlefield. And when you're right up against the enemy, I want you to withdraw your troops so Uriah will be killed. And lo and behold, Uriah was killed. Word was sent back to David that mission was accomplished. David never did mourn. He simply went and took Bathsheba to be his wife. And that's where we find ourselves in chapter 12. Let's pray. Father, we uh, thank you for your word. Thank you, God, for your plan to redeem us. Thank you, God, that everything that you've allowed to happen and caused to happen, everything that's been penned in your word from the beginning of time until now, it's been purposeful. It's been out of your love for this lost and dying world and your desire to redeem us. And I thank you for the example that, that we are going to see here in chapter 12 of, of a faithful friend. 
ultimately of a humble response that only comes from the strength of your spirit. Thank you for the forgiveness of sins that we see here. God, we even thank you that you love us enough and you love David enough to not only forgive him, but to also allow consequences. So God, please open our eyes and our hearts. Uh, Teach us this morning. Please uh, move me out of the way. God, please uh, just let the, uh, the word impact and convict. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, turn to uh, 2 Samuel with me, uh, chapter 12. And it says this. After all that happened, then the Lord sent Nathan to David, and he came to him and said, There were two men in one city, one rich and one poor. The rich man had a great many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb, which he bought and nourished, and it grew up together with him and his children and would eat of his bread, and drink of his cup, and lie in his bosom. and was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, and he was unwilling, and the rich man was unwilling to take from his own flock, or his own herd, to prepare for the wayfarer who had come to him. Rather, he took the poor man's ewe lamb, and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger burned greatly against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, surely the man who has done this deserves to die. And he must make restitution for the lamb fourfold, because he did this thing and had no compassion. Nathan then said to David, You are the man. Thus says the Lord of Israel, It is I who anointed you king over Israel, and it is I who delivered you from the hand of Saul. I also gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your care, and I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that had been too little, I would have added to you many more things like these. Why have you despised the word of the Lord by doing evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword. You have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the sons of Ammon. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you from your own household. I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your companion. And I shall lie with your wives in the broad daylight. Indeed, you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and under the sun. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord has taken away your sin. You shall not die. However, because by this deed you have given occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child also that is born to you shall surely die. So Nathan went to his house. And I got to tell you, there's there's a lot, a lot here. There's a lot of principles. It's all truth. The main focus today is going to be a faithful friend and a humble response. Nathan, as we know from Scripture, is a prophet. He's also a man who is David's dear friend. We see a couple of guys in David's life that are that are close friends. Jonathan's one of them. Nathan's another. One of David's sons is named after Nathan. We see that in 2 Samuel 5. David had dreams or goals that God put on his heart. He shared those dreams only with Nathan, the desire to build a temple. Nathan actually named Bathsheba and David's second son. That's a friend. You know, I think of, of, you know, you know you've got a close friend when they name one of their kids for you or even 
after you. The Lord sent Nathan to rebuke or admonish David. It says in verse 1, Then the Lord sent Nathan to David, and he came to him. Have you ever had the feeling that you're supposed to talk to somebody? You've seen sin in their life. You've seen sin that there's a pattern of sin in their life. It's sin that's destructive, that's tearing apart their family. Maybe it's tearing apart the church. Maybe it's blaspheming the name of God. Have you ever had God just tell you to to do it? And I'm hoping that as we go through this, we'll see that there is a difference between going to somebody every time they blow it and looking for patterns of sin. Because we all have the Holy Spirit, and it's the Holy Spirit that ultimately convicts. But the Holy Spirit will use a faithful friend at times to just be a soft tapping in the chest to get our attention. Nathan is going to confront David with a parable. A parable of all things. And what we see in this parable is three things. And to to understand the parable, you need to know these three things. The rich man in the parable is David. The poor man is Uriah. And the sheep, the lamb, is Bathsheba. Nathan said there were two men in one city. The one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a great many flocks and herds. The poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb, Bathsheba, which he bought and nourished, and it grew up together with him and his children, and it would eat of his bread and drink of his cup and lie in his bosom. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take from his own flock or his own herd. Do you know how many wives David had? He was unwilling to take from his own flock or his own herd to prepare for the wayfarer who had come to him. Rather, he took the poor man's ewe lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. I want you to notice something. David doesn't come in with guns a-blazing. There's been a period of time that has gone by here, maybe as much as nine months before Nathan confronted David. And he did it really in a pretty gentle way, in a very personal way. Nathan knew David. Nathan knew that David was going to be able to relate with a sheep story. David was a herder, was a shepherd. Nathan spoke the truth in love. And he used examples that David could relate with. Here's David's response. David's anger burned greatly against the man in the parable. And he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, surely the man who has done this deserves to die. And he must make restitution for the lamb fourfold, because he did this thing, and he had no compassion. David is calling for the head of the man that stole this lamb in the story. And he still doesn't get it. He didn't get it. Are there times, are there times, there was an instance in my life recently, in the last few weeks, where I was unfairly treated. In fact, I was even slandered. And my first reaction was to get ticked off. 
ticked off. And what I didn't see was that the Lord wanted to use this for me to help me see the way that I wrong others on a daily basis in my thought life, if nothing else. And David, all he could see at this point was this parable of this man stealing a lamb and slaughtering it for his own pleasure. David called for restitution. He said that that he needs to repay four lambs for the one lamb that was stolen. And he gets this right out of Scripture in Exodus 22, where it talks about where God was laying down the law that if a sheep is stolen, you need to repay it fourfold. It reminds me a little bit of Judah in Genesis 38, where he learns that Tamar, his daughter-in-law, is pregnant. And he wants to burn her. He wants to torture. That is ugly and it's vile. Then he learns it was him that made her pregnant. That he's the father of the child in her womb. You know, I was thinking about this story and just wondering what the Lord wants to do in my life with it. And the way the Lord's made me is... I'm a defender of people. I always have been from this high. You know, if somebody is in trouble, if there's a kid at high school that's getting picked on, doesn't matter who's picking on him, you know, I'm going to be there in his face. And it doesn't matter if it's on the rugby field, somebody's getting picked on, I'm the first one to throw the punch. And when my wife, Nancy, when she's being, being treated wrongly by one of my sons, maybe by somebody else, I am right there getting ticked off at the offender. And then I look at my relationship with Nancy, and I'm the worst offender. There's nobody that treats her worse than I do. Yet I've got unrighteous indignation at other people because they're treating her that way. David still doesn't get it. He hears it. He's ticked. And he isn't fully convicted. Nathan says this to David. You are the man. You are the rich man in this story. Thus says the Lord God of Israel. There's so many cool illustrations in this passage. Nathan's a prophet. And a prophet delivers the word of God. Directly from the mouth of God. And what I really appreciate about Nathan is that he is telling him straight from the words of God. He's admonishing him from the words of God. After Nathan indicts David, telling him that you are the man in the story, I just pictured David sitting in stunned silence. Stunned silence. While Nathan draws attention to specific offenses and the consequences of the sin. And God says through Nathan, it is I who anointed you king over Israel. And it is I who delivered you from the hand of Saul. I also gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your care. And I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that had been too little, I would have added to you many more things like these. God is speaking through Nathan and reminding David that everything David has is because the Lord chose to give it to him. You know, the reproof here isn't all about sexual sin and murder. Those are the symptoms of David's heart. David, his possessions and his position started to own him. 
he started thinking that he was something else. And I would submit that when we sin, and when we're slow to turn from our sin, it's because of something going on in our heart. Have you ever had times when it takes you days or weeks to really see your sin? You know, it's like the Fonz in Happy Days. You know, it's, I, I, I'm, he couldn't say the I'm sorry thing. And for me, there's, there are times, by God's grace, there are many times when the Lord just convicts me immediately. And I'm able to ask who I offended forgiveness. But there's other times where I'm so caught up in being wronged. I'm so caught up in being wronged that I don't see my part in it. And someone else's sin doesn't excuse our sin, does it? There's two Psalms that really go hand in hand with this chapter. It's Psalm 32 and Psalm 51. And so basically, God is telling David through Nathan that you've sinned against me. I've given you all this stuff. And you threw it back in my face. You blaspheming me. In Psalm 51 verse 4, it's no wonder that David said this. He said, Lord, against thee, thee only have I sinned. David is recognizing that this sin is against the God Almighty. And our sin, when we sin, is against God. Nathan continues, Why have you despised the word of the Lord by doing evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword. Murder. You have taken his wife to be your wife. Adultery. And you have killed him with the sword of the sons of Ammon. Nathan stated the facts. And we're going to learn in a little bit at the end of this message some principles on how to confront, when to confront, and how to receive confrontation. And one of the things is, is just stick to the facts. I don't know about you, but when Nancy and I do this kind of argument thing. You know, we start digging things up and making accusations, and it gets pretty darn ugly. But Nathan just stated the facts. He reiterated to David what it is that he did. And now he talks about the consequences. He says, Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me. Remember, these are God's words through Nathan. You have despised me, the Lord says. And have taken the wife of Uriah, the Hittite, to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you from your own household. I will even take your wives before your eyes and give them to your companion. And he shall lie with your wives in broad daylight. Indeed, you did it secretly. But I will do this thing before all Israel and under the sun. And we actually see these consequences take shape in the coming chapters. We're actually one of David's sons tries to take over his kingdom and takes all of his wives into a tent in a public place and sleeps with them. And we know through much conflict in David's house that the sword never did depart it. And this can be confusing. This can be very confusing because God is a God of grace. He's a God of mercy, isn't he? He says his mercies are new every day. It says in Romans 8, 1, that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But I would submit to you with the proof of the text that when there's unrepentant sin, when there's a pattern of unrepentant sin, he is going to lay down consequences. And the fact that there's consequences and the fact that there's no condemnation are not opposing thoughts. 
They're not opposing thoughts. They beautifully fit together. Think about it with your children. I think about it with my dear son Joey back there. There was times even through six pairs of underwear that I had to spank him. And I always let him know that he was loved and that daddy forgave him. But I love him enough where I need to take him to the divine woodshed. (laughs) Amen. We see through the New Testament where God uses the word, particularly in the NASB, of practicing sin. Practicing sin. And that's where we need to wake up, folks. If there's areas, if there's patterns, if there's blind spots in our life of practicing sin, that's when the Lord seems to lay down the consequences. Here's David's response to Nathan in verse 13. I have sinned against the Lord. I've sinned against the Lord. David went months without any conviction in his heart. A faithful friend and the power and conviction of the Holy Spirit made him a puddle of sorrow and repentance. I have sinned against the Lord. Then Nathan said to David, The Lord has taken away your sin. Don't we need to hear that? Don't we need to hear that? It is so good for me to hear. And that's that's where the no condemnation thing comes in. The no condemnation thing does not excuse our sin. It gives us freedom in sin, knowing that God will never leave us, nor forsake us. But it's not a license to sin. The Lord has taken away your sin. You shall not die. Verse 14, however, I was just thinking about this again in relationship to our kids. There's often times where I'd get home and I'd have to administer the consequences. When we're delivering consequences, it should never be out of anger. If it is, you should never lift the rod. It should always be out of love and to and to want to turn the wayward's head towards righteousness and towards Christ. And it's a beautiful picture of how the Lord loves us. He loves us enough that He's not going to let us get away with unrepentant patterns of sin in our life. And the consequences many times are going to fit the sin. i got to tell you, as I was just listening to the Lord and reading this, I believe that there's consequences that are different for believers than there is for unbelievers. God is a God of grace. And if you look at, at, at 1 Corinthians 7... Somebody gets divorced, for example, before salvation. What does the Lord allow them to do? To get remarried. Why? Because we are new creation after we're a believer. And I believe there's all kinds of crud that we did before we were believers that, yeah, there's going to be natural consequences to it, right? You know what I mean by natural consequences? Just the consequences that the world has. But when we are believers... And we thumb our nose the Lord, wink our eye at sin. God takes it seriously. Takes it seriously. Verse 14. Because by this deed you have given occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme. David, that everybody knows, is a man after God's own heart. Everybody in the kingdom knew it. He basically drug the Lord's name and the Lord's reputation through the mud. Because by this deed you have given occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme. The child also that is born to you shall surely die. 
So Nathan went to his house. And I don't understand it. I don't understand why consequences are different for different sins. I don't know why the Lord had to be so tough on David. Maybe because of David's position. But there was continual calamity in David's house. And we learn in verse 16 that the Lord actually afflicted and eventually took David and Bathsheba's first child. But by God's grace, second child, you know what his name was? Solomon. And you know who came out of that line? Jesus. Joseph. So God works good with sin. Praise be to God. David penned this. Sometime after Nathan left him, he penned Psalm 32. And I would just say, take some time and read Psalm 32 and Psalm 51 after meditating on today's scriptures. Psalm 32, verses 3 through 4 says, This is David praying to the Lord. When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night thy hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. David was the Lord's. Even through that nine months of unrepentant, he was the Lord's. But there was a sense of a broken communion with the Lord. God will never leave us, forsake us. Positionally, he sees us as innocent. He sees us as forgiven. We are pure and we are holy. Relationally, we can cut that relationship right off by unrepentant sin. And my guess during that time, David didn't even, he couldn't even, he couldn't even muster up the energy or the power to go before the Lord. And that's one of the reasons that the Lord lovingly brought Nathan to him. Because the Lord desires a relationship with us. He desires to commune with us daily. And brother and sister, don't let this message be a heavy thing. Because it really is a cool thing. The Lord loves us enough to not let us live in sin. Amen? Let's take a look at admonishing fellow believers. Because one of the reasons that prompted me to to teach this message is, is that I need, and I just so desire other men in my life. I desire... Biblical fellowship. I desire not for guys to be nitpicking and pulling every speck out of my eye when they got logs in their own eye, but I desire guys to love me enough that when they see patterns in my life, would be patterns of anger, of sharp tongue, of whatever it is that I've got blind spots, I want guys to be Nathans in my life. And I want you to have that same desire. So when do you admonish a fellow believer? I would submit to you that when there's a relationship. When there's a relationship. If you know, you should go. Just an example. If Chris and I, for example, hear of and see patterns in somebody's life that really just need to be lovingly confronted, and I see it and I know it, Chris sees it and knows it, but Chris has a relationship with this person. Who do you think this person is going to hear it from? Who do you think that the Holy Spirit is going to use in a more effective way? Probably Chris. Because don't, people don't want to know 
how much you know until what? Until they know how much you care. And so we want to go to people when all possible in the context of relationship. Proverbs 27, 6 says, Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. We want to go when there's unrepentant sin or when there's a pattern that is destructive to the transgressor or to others. We want to go when there is unrepentant sin or there's patterns that we see that are destructive to our friend or to people around our friend. And I'm not going to read all these scriptures, but James 5:19 says, My brethren, if any among you strays from the truth and one turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from an error of his way will save his soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. What are some of the reasons that we wouldn't confront a believer? Why wouldn't we? I know, I mean, it's really kind of scary because the time that we live in, it's all about sugar-coating the truth. Sugar-coating the truth from the pulpit, sugar-coating the truth in relationships. And we think that, that it's not loving and it's not being a friend to help them see their waywardness. Proverbs 27, 5 through 6. The first reason is lacking love for the brother. Proverbs 27 says, Better is open rebuke than love that is concealed. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but deceitful are the kisses of the enemy. You know, i got to tell you, I'm like everybody. I need and want to be encouraged. Can somebody tell me something nice about the way I dressed or something today? Nothing? Oh, thank you very much. See, we all need to hear positives. But if we're walking around flattering each other and not calling a spade a spade, there's no fellowship. Another reason we won't confront a fellow believer is improper understanding of judging. Take a look at 1 Corinthians 5, 9-13. Have you ever heard somebody say, Don't you judge me. Don't you judge me. What it says in 1 Corinthians 5 is that we're not to judge the world. And what do we spend our time doing? All those Democrats, those abortionists, those evil school administrators that won't allow the Ten Commandments in the school. Well, what do we expect? They're lost. Let's pray for them. If you see me, and let me, let me back up a sec, because I've actually said this before and I've been admonished for it. And I'm going to get admonished again, and I need to be admonished. We need to stand up for life. We need to stand up for righteousness. But let's not judge and condemn people that are going to hell. That's the Lord's job. Let's share the good news of Jesus Christ with them, which is the pure, unadulterated Word of God. It says at the end of this chapter in 1 Corinthians 5, we're to judge each other. We're to judge each other. But there's a warning in that judgment that we'll get to in a second. How should we admonish? Slowly. Slowly. Lord, do you want me to go to this guy? Do you want me to go to this girl? What I do at times is I, I go in with guns blazing. And I haven't prayed about it. Go in slowly. A man's wisdom gives him patience. And it's to his glory to look over an offense. Secondly, take the log out of our own eye. That's a tough one. If we're going around looking for faults in our fellow believers, we're going around looking around with our finger in their chest, and we're not seeing the log in our own eye, don't go. 
It's Matthew 7. Go alone. Go alone. Matthew 18 says, If your brother sins, go and reprove him in private. If he listens to you, you've won a brother. Go alone. It doesn't do any good to talk about it with other people. In fact, it's flat out sin to talk about with other people until you've gone to that person. Be compassionate, kind, and forgiving. Colossians 3. Use the scriptures. Use the scriptures. If you can't admonish with scriptures, we should admonish. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching and reproof, for correction, for training and righteousness, that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Admonish in as few words as possible. I love this. And I want to take heed of this. Proverbs 10.19, Where there are many words, transgression is unavoidable. But he restrains his lips as wise. The last way to admonish is present the facts, ask questions, and let the Holy Spirit convict. Let's remember that men, that your wives have the same Holy Spirit you do. Ladies, your husbands have the same Holy Spirit you do. Okay, And it's the Holy Spirit that convicts. At times, we need to present the facts and bring things when we see patterns of unrepentant sin. How are we to respond when admonished? It's convicting to me. We're actually to welcome it. E. Proverbs 12. Whoever loves discipline loves knowledge. But he who hates reproof is stupid. That's what it says. He who hates reproof is stupid. David welcomed it. David, it says, uh, David wrote Psalm 141 and he says, Let the righteous smite me. Basically, pummel him in kindness. Let the righteous smite me in kindness and reprove me. It is oil upon my head, warm oil that feels good. Do not let my head refuse it. Where we respond righteously and humbly. The way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man is he who listens to counsel. Listen to counsel and accept discipline that you may be wise the rest of our days. The other way we're to respond is what I call learn and turn. First Kings talks about David. Chapter 15, David did what was right in the sight of the Lord. This is the last thing that is said about David when he's, he's dying here. David, and he might have already died here. David did what was right in the sight of the Lord and had not turned aside from anything that God commanded him. David did what was right in the sight of the Lord and had not turned aside from anything that God commanded him. All the days of his life, except in the case of Uriah the Hittite. It actually says that. What do you think David's life might have looked like without the faithful wounds of a friend? Who's your Nathan? Men especially. If we're not meeting with other guys, and if you're not being honest with what's really going on in your heart, and what it is you struggle with, whether it be not loving your wife the way the Lord's called you to love your wife, maybe it's pornography, maybe it's alcohol, maybe it's anger, maybe it's wrong thinking, i got to tell you, there are guys in this church that would love to have your back. There's guys in this church that would love to daily lift you before the throne of grace. 
Ladies, same thing. Our first accountability should be each other as, as men and women, if you're married, husbands and wives. But I would submit to you that in this day and age of all the crud that we're exposed to, on the TV, the radio, college campuses with people running around with not much clothing on, um, we need others. Men, we need each other. Who's your Nathan? Let's pray. Father, we just thank you that, that you've given us your Holy Spirit. Your Holy Spirit that brings comfort, that gives us peace, that gives us understanding of your word. We thank you that you bring conviction to our hearts. And God, we thank you that it doesn't matter. It really doesn't matter what we do. That if we are truly and genuinely yours, if we're your children, nothing will separate us from your love. That there is no condemnation for those of us that are in Christ Jesus. God, I thank you for consequences. I don't know that I like consequences. But I know I need them. And I just ask, God, that when we're in sin, when I'm in sin, would you gently turn my head? And Holy Spirit, would you get our attention so you don't need to take us to the divine woodshed? And God, I just pray that we would be a church of men and women that love each other so much that we really examine our hearts to ask the question, are we really being friends to one another? So we just ask, God, that you go before us, that you would, as Chris prayed earlier, Lord, as uh, we're getting ready to, to praise and worship you, that you would inhabit those praises. It's in Christ's special name we pray. Amen.